Welcome to Beaver Lodge Alliance's sermon podcast. We're so glad to join you. This is the latest sermon. We pray that you would receive encouragement, exhortation, and that Jesus would speak to you through this sermon. Enjoy. Happy to be here back again. Uh, As Nate said, my name is Nick. I have the privilege of serving on the elders board. I have the privilege to share with you this morning. Um, Hi to Greg's mom in Florida. (laughs) I'll be continuing the series that uh, Greg started last week, the Rekindle Trend Tracker, uh, put out by our Western Canadian District. It's uh, meant to give us a little bit of information about trends in society, cultural trends, uh, where we might be going, and it's meant to get us to think about where our current culture is at, where it might be going, and most importantly, how to bring the kingdom of heaven into our communities. So today I am excited, I'm thrilled to be talking about tribalization, division, separation, segregation, and all of this is the disintegration of the West. Disintegration of the West, the fragmentation continues. Markers of the disintegration of the West, not to be confused with the fall, continue to mount. Signs of an integrative, cohesive, and unifying narrative across and among Western nations grow more elusive. Social media continues to fragment and tribalize populations into algorithmically directed echo chambers. Video consumption is sharply on the rise via platforms such as TikTok and YouTube, yielding even further tribalization in learning outcomes and perceptions of reality. One person's sense of reality can be the opposite of another's, even though they may live in proximity to each other. Perceived truth has become relative and fluid. Declining birth rates, compelling increased immigration, gender identity fluidity matters, a growing post-scientific worldview, the rewriting of history according to divergent ideological worldviews, and collapsing economic systems all point to a future with a society that is more fragmented and tribalized. This is also seen globally as regionalism, rather than globalism, is increasingly the buzzword for the 2020s, bringing supply chains closer to home and limiting international risk. All-encompassing societal shifts are not new to Western civilization. Indeed, some sociological historians argue that these are to be expected roughly every 80 years and frequently culminate around seismic events such as war or pandemics. Earlier examples of widespread societal trauma and redefinition occurred during the Second World War, the American Civil War, and the American Revolutionary War. Neil Howell's The Fourth Turning is an appropriate read on this front. During times of a societal upheaval and fragmentation, the macro narratives, that is, the commonly held worldview, shift. In the contemporary case, it includes the widespread fragmentation of worldviews. In such an environment, society finds it extraordinarily challenging to achieve unity or even harmony on myriad issues. The COVID-19 pandemic demonstrated that the church is no exception to the rise of opposing perspectives on important issues. Conversely, Times of upheaval present the church with new opportunities to contextualize the gospel in new forms to address deep needs not addressed in the experimentation of societal engineering. So a bit of a fact for you guys, all the narration are done by people within our church here, so if you can figure out who that is, we're not going to tell you. But 
Um, it's going to be a familiar voice. So there's a lot going on in that video. There's a lot of buzzwords, a lot of, a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of words that, and there's a lot of information here. Um, now the trend tracker describes the the disintegration of the West, not the disintegration, not the you know deatomization, turning into dust, but the disintegration. And so let's be clear about our our definitions. Let's be clear about what that means because that's important to this discussion. It's important we know what we're talking about. And one of the things I wasn't quite sure about was what the West means in this context. So I had an opportunity to speak with the author of this article, Doug Balzer. He's part of the Western Canadian District. And he helped me understand a little more about this trend. So let's define some terms. In, the, in, in this article, the West is going to refer to cultures and societies based on democratic principles. So rights, freedoms, responsibility-based societies, societies based on the value of the individual person. <clears throat> the countries that embody these ideals, typically uh, Canada, Britain, France, the United States, Sweden, Germany, a lot of these European countries. Generally speaking, the West refers to countries that can trace their constitutions and their charters back to Judeo-Christian values. Now that's not to say that these are Christian nations per se, but woven into the societal structure on how these countries developed and came up are these common Judeo-Christian values, values based on the Bible. So that is the West. And what about disintegration? So integration is the combining of two parts that when one part meets with another part, they link up, they mesh together, and both parts still retain what they were before, but the whole of what they've made is greater than what they were on its own. Now, disintegration would be the opposite of that, the separation of these two things. They still function on their own, but they're not what they were together. And as described in, in the article, we're experiencing a disintegration, a fragmentation of society. As the article says, social media continues to fragment and tribalize populations into algorithmically directed echo chambers. Video consumption is sharply on the rise via platforms such as TikTok and YouTube, yielding further tribalization in learning outcomes and perceptions of reality. Tribalization in this context means, right, there are tribes, there's another tribe, they're separate. Tribalization just means, it's another word for disintegration in this context. Now, algorithmically, this is a fun word, okay? It's a computer science term, it's been around for ages, but it's really come into the common understanding lately, right? So algorithmically, that's going to mean basically a, a computer system knows what to show us on our phones, on our social media. Based on what we click on, the links we follow, the types of pages and images that we spend more time on, this really freaks me out, where your camera on your phone can track your eyes. Did you know this? Right? And it knows where on your phone you're looking. That's how your iPhone knows how to stay on. Uh, when you're looking at it compared to right when you look away from it. Um, and when you give an app permission to, to use your camera, you're giving it permission to, to track where you're going. Don't be freaked out about this. This is, it's not like it's like saying, oh, I'm going to get your retinal scan or something like that. It's, it's, it's just, it's marketing. That's all it is. Advertising and marketing to make this company more money. So what the algorithm does is like Facebook and, and Google, they're going to personalize what they're going to show you 
based on what you've seen in, or looked at in the past. So for me, you know, if I'm looking at sports websites or, you know, the National Post, I try to look at different news articles to, to kind of balance my view out. Um, it's going to show me more National Post articles. It's going to predict, it's going to suggest more articles like that. Facebook and, and uh, Google, you know, any website that, or app that tracks is going gonna, is gonna to do that. And it's because they just want you to spend more time looking at their content. More time equals more advertising. More advertising equals more money in their pocket. So this is important to understand because it's the way that people are grouping together into more and more groups that share an ideology. Ideology is another one of the words that came up. And when I say ideology, I'm not saying it with a judgment, right? Sometimes we can, we can hear the word ideology and think, well, that ideology and this ideology, and you know, that's an ideology. I don't want to get associated with an ideology. The problem is, is that ideology is just a word. And it just means that it's a framework and it's a structure of assumptions and beliefs that guide someone's thoughts and actions. We all have ideologies. You know, I've got an ideology about what my living room should be arranged like. You know, it's just a framework, that's all it is. But people are getting more and more, uh, they're gravitating towards groups that share their ideology and their ideas. Social media, we can wrap ourselves in a digital world that only confirms what we think based on the algorithm. The more, we the more time we spend in an environment, the more comfortable we become in that environment, especially when our beliefs aren't challenged the more ingrained we become in that particular world. Back to the article, one person's sense of reality can be the opposite of another's, even though they may live in close proximity to each other. Perceived truth has become relative. So a good example of this is, is the convoy to Ottawa, all right? Some people saw it as a justified and righteous fight for our freedoms, and other people they saw it as an illegal and dangerous occupation. Those, are, th those, those two people, they, they could be neighbors. They could be in the same house. But they have different devices, different technology, and they're looking at it. They're getting more and more separated into their ideological zones. As we are only exposed to our group's, think, our group's thinking, we don't develop the ability to disagree in a healthy way. We don't learn to accept differences. Conversation and understanding becomes difficult, if not impossible, because we don't have a common language. We don't have a common understanding of our shared world. We grow to lack a common story that we can all share. I believe that we can actually feel this happening right now. Right? There's this divergence that's happening. More and more, it seems, we're lacking a common foundation that we can all relate to. These foundations that ideologies and beliefs are built on, they're called, they're called narratives. Are, we're familiar with this term, narrative? No? Maybe? <laughs> I got to know. Or yeah? That was yeah? Okay. Um, so a narrative, another definition, it's become prominent again in the last few years. Basically, a narrative is a, it's a shared story that a group of people relate to and can associate with. A little bit different than an ideology, because a narrative, it helps, us, it helps us understand and make sense of the world a little bit more. Now the thing about narratives is that there's different layers, they're built upon each other. Some narratives are deeper than others, and some are more profound than others. 
And again, I think we can feel this out. We've got an ability to actually to work with this, to, to roll with this and figure out what's deeper. And so let me give you an example. This is going to be about hockey. All right. So, you know, if you don't like hockey, bear with me, but uh, I think we can all associate with this. Uh, I'll use the Vancouver Canucks as an example. They're the team I grew up watching. And so we'd watch the Canucks and they'd do well. More often than not, they wouldn't, but that's okay. So when they were doing well, you know, it'd be exciting. They were my team, right? I'd be rooting for the team that was winning. And that was my, that was my narrative. My narrative was, I want to be associated to the team that's winning because it feels good, right? I can wear my Canucks shirt, I can wave my Canucks flag, and when they're winning, everyone's like, yeah, go Canucks. It's not a great narrative, okay? But it's a narrative. It makes sense to a lot of people, right? I feel better when my team, the team I'm associated to, is winning. Okay, now fast forward a few years. The Canucks are doing pretty well. Um, they're, they're on their way to the playoffs, kind of in, uh, in the stretch, the playoff stretch. Right, this would be like March kind of deal. Now, the Canucks uh, had been playing the Colorado Avalanche, one of their division rivals, and uh, a couple games before this game, they'd been playing the Avalanche again, and one of the Avalanche players, Steve Moore, had laid this dirty hit on Marcus Naslin, the Canucks captain. And if you guys remember this, Steve Moore comes in and kind of puts his elbow out as Naslin's coming by. Naslin was kind of reaching for a puck, had his head down, and, and got knocked out. It was, it was a bad hit. So this is the game after that. And late in the game, uh, you could tell the Canucks were, they were fired up, they were ready to go. Um, Steve Moore is on the ice, the avalanche player that hit Naslund. And if you remember this, guy on the Canucks, Todd Bertuzzi, what's that? Oh, I thought someone was, yeah, you remember that? Um, Todd Bertuzzi is this huge guy on the Canucks. He is the definition of a power forward. He skates up behind Steve Moore and in a dirty play, drops his stick, grabs Steve Moore, and clocks him across the back of the head. This was an awful thing to watch. This was terrible. And then dogpile on the ice. It was, it, there were suspensions. Uh, Todd Bertuzzi actually got charged criminally for this. But what does this have to do with narratives? So the narrative I was living by where the Canucks are my team. The Canucks are winning. It feels good. Okay? The Canucks just destroyed the avalanche here, this avalanche player. But the thing was the Canucks had done something terrible in the name of winning. And now I felt bad because I knew this was something wrong that was done. There was conflict in my narratives. If this is what my team had to do to win, I don't know if winning is actually worth it. And so from that, I could extract a deeper narrative out of this. It actually matters how you win. It actually matters how you play the game. And I talked to my friends about this, and we all agreed, hey, this was too much. This was too far. This wasn't worth it to win. Now, we had developed a shared narrative about what good sportsmanship looked like, or maybe what it actually didn't look like. These shared narratives give us a common ground, a shared experience. And some narratives, they are deeper than others. So in our society, how, how did we lose some of these shared narratives? How did we start to disintegrate? There are a lot of intersecting reasons. There's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons why this happened. I just want to kind of explore one idea. And that's going to be the, the phasing out of organized religion from our society. 
Okay, we, we have a, what's occurring right now, a secularization of society, a removal of religion from society. I'm not here to make an argument that we should have mandatory church attendance. I'm not here to make an argument we should have prayer in school. Rather, I want to offer an explanation of what happens when organized religion of any kind is removed from a society. So in the, in the trend tracker, as we heard, cultural shifts happen. Okay, World War II was one of them. The pandemic's one of them. So in our society, after World War II, uh, about, you know, call it 70 years ago in North America, mention of God and general Christian ideology, there's that word again, it's not negative, it just helps us understand, Christian ideology has been taught less and less in childhood education. So most religions, and Christianity is no different, have a moral structure built into them. So guess what? You take away religious study, you take away religious understanding, and you take away this ingrained moral structure. And then schools, they don't teach morality anymore because there's no separate morality teaching. It's baked in to the religion. So in the absence of a complex moral structure, we have a simple be kind, don't offend. These things become the basis for a new morality. It's not bad advice, it's not, but it's a pretty simple narrative. It's pretty low resolution. So the problem with people is that we're built to believe in something. We're built to plug into these narratives because narratives inform us of what our beliefs are. And our beliefs speak to our own value and purpose. And we yearn to be valued and we yearn to have purpose. When the common narrative of religion is removed from society, there's this hole that remains. And it's, it's a really, really important hole. There's another discussion to be had, not for today, about whether or not we actually had a flourishing society and had a good handle on our beliefs when we had this common religious awareness. That's a discussion for another day. But let's talk about this hole that's left. Where we were once integrated around this common story, this common narrative, we now have a hole. We now have gaps that, that we want to naturally, we're inclined to fill in. So where do we look to to fill that gap. Well, in a secularized society, we look to, we look inward, we look to the individual. We are an individualistic society. We, we have, that's what, we, my rights, my freedoms, right? I get to do this. It's not bad on its whole, but it's where we reflect when we're looking for value. With today's Devices and technology, I can surround myself with comments and videos, blogs and pages that support what I think. I don't have to share a different narrative with another group because if I'm attached to a group that gives me acceptance, makes me feel comfortable, clearly my group has it figured out. My narrative becomes self-focused, my story becomes about me and those that support my way of thinking. I'm rewarded with attention, I'm rewarded with value when I reaffirm the values and ideology of the group, and on the other side, I'm ostracized and I'm punished when I disagree or ask questions that might challenge the group consistency. Look, this path might be a common story. If this isn't part of your own life, then you probably know someone who's experienced something like this. So there's someone with a certain skill, certain way of dressing, a certain theology, 
a certain outlook on vaccines or masks, a certain orientation. So this path starts off sounding really good because you or that person that you know plugs into a group that they find acceptance in. This, you know, a person with, we all have quirks, right? right? But we plug into a group that accepts those quirks and, and we, we feel good, we get acceptance. That person, or, or you know, you buy into that group, you buy into the way the group acts and thinks. And at this point, you know what, this can actually go one of two ways. Uh, in one way, the buy-in to the group becomes so extreme. Being part of the group becomes part of my identity. It's who I am. I'm, I'm part of the Canucks, right? They're, they're my team. I don't care what they do because they're my team. And if I question anything in that, that questioning becomes an attack on the identity. So to protect its group, to protect its members, the group collapses into an ideological silo, a contained bubble. Right, a silo. Well, we're in, we're in farm country. We all know what silos are, right? You got a silo for one thing, silo for another thing, and never the two shall meet, right? So an ideological silo is just a, a silo of ideas that doesn't interact. And this is where an algorithm is really going to shine, right? Because once that ball starts rolling, once it starts spinning, it just keeps going and going and going without any outside influence. Maybe another way that this goes is a group member grows and, and matures, and, and then they think, hey, let's question this. Let's get, let's get to the bottom of what this group really thinks. They start questioning aspects of the way the group interacts with other people, the foundations. Maybe this person, they're looking for a deeper narrative about what's going on. Members of the group can see this as threatening to the cohesion of the group. The curious person, they're branded as a traitor, and hey, they get kicked out of the group. The problem is this person is still as quirky, they're still, they still have the same skills they had before, the, the thing that actually led them to acceptance in the group in the first place, but now they're a little older, they're a little wiser, and they're a lot more lonely. So what fell apart in this? Where did that narrative go wrong? Where did being a part of the group not find fulfillment? And again, just like me cheering for the Canucks, just because they're winning, the narrative, the story, the plot, that was the initial draw, it wasn't deep enough. It wasn't robust enough. It wasn't on solid ground. It didn't stand up to scrutiny and question. In either of those cases, the person that really buys in or the person that questions and separates, nobody comes away from that situation with more life more vibrancy, more compassion, more fulfillment. Now for believers, for non-believers, for people online, those aren't separate groups, right? <laughs> um, you, you should ask the question, doesn't the church fall into the same perils of ostracizing and segregating others? Isn't the church just one big ideological group? What can the church do that goes beyond the initial draw? What can Beaver Lodge Alliance Church offer? So let me ask you this. Are these unprecedented times? Are these times of upheaval? Man, I hope so. I hope so. But not for the sake of watching the world burn. 
Because going back to the article, times of upheaval present the church with new opportunities to contextualize the gospel in new forms, to address the deep needs, not addressed in the experimentation of social engineering. We, as a church, have opportunities before us. I'll paraphrase Doug Balzer in our conversation again. So we have a church have an opportunity to offer a better narrative, a narrative of the theology of the value of the human. That's our bridge. We can honor and dignify the human individual, as Jesus did, with hospitality and with love. So how do we know that that's actually a deeper narrative? How do we actually know that that's not just some low resolution, you know, whatever, come along with me and it'll be fine and then you'll be disappointed in the end? How do we know that that's actually a better story? How do we know that valuing, dignifying, and honoring the human individual with hospitality and love is actually the way to go? I think the only way to know for sure is if we just try it out, right? Are we satisfied with the narratives that we've been living by? Have we actually dug into this and tried this? Paul gives us a beautiful example of what this might look like. Philippians 2, verse 2, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from this love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset of Jesus. In, uh, in John, in 1334, at the Last Supper, in the, in the last hours that Jesus had with his disciples, you know, what do you say? What do you say to someone when you know you have hours left with them? Jesus says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love one another, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Right, so that's, that's Jesus telling us how to interact with each other inside the church with other believers. That's Paul telling us how to be united. What about for outside the church, right? You know, we've got a lot of Christians here. How do we react with people outside? With our neighbors, with our community, what is the example? And I believe that the most powerful example that I've come across is, is the story of the Good Samaritan. Now in Luke 10, 25, Jesus lays out this parable. Many of you might be familiar with it. Um, Jesus was having a discussion with a legal expert, a Jewish legal expert. And so this expert asked him, uh, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, being Jesus, asked him, you know, his answers to the question, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the legal expert replies, you must love your God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. How does Jesus respond? In probably the rarest occurrence in the Bible, Jesus points to him and says, you're right. 
And so the legal expert, I could imagine, is feeling pretty good. He's like, all right, okay. But he really wants to nail this down. He wants to have his ducks in a row. So then he asks Jesus, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And then the parable takes off, right? As, as many of you know, there's a, a Jewish man on the, uh, on the side of the road. He's been mugged. Todd Bertuzzi came and laid a hit on him. He's just been trashed on the side of the road, broken bones, robbed. And then along comes a Jewish priest. One of his own kind, one of his, one of his brothers comes. And this Jewish priest, instead of addressing him, instead of saying, hey, are you okay? He walks to the other side of the road, takes off. And then there's another man that comes along, a temple worker, uh, again, walks right by him. But it was a Samaritan, and, and the Samaritan, this is important to the story, right? Because as, as, as many of you know, the, the Samaritans were the sworn enemies of the Jewish people, right? The Samaritans are a group. They have their ideology. They have their way of thinking. They're enemies. They've gone to war. They've fought. They've killed each other with the Jewish people at the time. But it was a Samaritan man that saw past the injured man's association to his group. It was a Samaritan man that, that looked past his own association to his group, and he saw the common humanity. He honored the part that they shared together. And so he takes the man, he, he bandages him up, he takes him to an inn, right, and tells the innkeeper, hey, whatever cost it is, I got this covered, let me know how much it is, I'll, I'll cover the bill. So then Jesus asks at the end of this parable, he asks, who is the injured man's neighbor? Who is the injured man's neighbor? Of course, it was the one that showed him mercy. And then Jesus directs us. He directs the legal expert. He directs us to do the same. So here at Beaver Lodge Alliance Church, what can we do? Well, Paul says we can be full of mercy to one another. We can live a better narrative. We can courageously give honor to individuals with hospitality and love. In humility, we can value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Look, we can have different stories in the church. We can be fans of different teams. But we can all step back and say, hey, that was a good play. Oh, that play was bad. And we can all agree on that. The fragmentation of our Western society, it's difficult to see. It, it feels like we're losing something, right? It feels like cohesion has gone. It feels like the common thing that we once shared, the comfort that we once had is no longer there. And it's also uncovered and laid bare the needs that we all have, the needs that have always existed, and I wouldn't want to go back to the way things were. Okay, I wouldn't want to go back, I wasn't alive in the 60s, but I wouldn't want to go back to the perception of, of how things were. Okay, I wouldn't want us to go back to a topical religion that was taught, because here and now, there are new opportunities that haven't been brought about. The past has, has there's been development, there's been cultural maturity, okay, we've understood things differently. Right? I've experienced this, right? I remember my parents having small groups at home. And, you know, they'd be talking about things. And, of course, as a kid, what do you do? You, you're supposed to be in bed, but you sneak out and you listen to things you're not supposed to listen to. Right? And my kids are doing that, too. Um, and that's okay because, 
discussions I've had with my parents and, and, and other people in that group, they're like, I can't believe you guys talk about that stuff now. It's fantastic. I'm not saying we're better now than they were. What I'm saying is we're taking the blessing of the foundation that they've laid and we're running with it. We're running with it to be more vulnerable with each other. We're running with it to have deeper relationships with each other. And it's fantastic. But we couldn't do that without the past. I wouldn't want to change the past. But there are new opportunities now. So how do we bring the kingdom of heaven to this earth? The disintegration of Western society, Western culture, has unveiled these new opportunities for our church, for Beaver Lodge Alliance Church, for members of our church, for us, to speak anew the oldest and deepest narratives. The narratives of love, meaning, and the value of each human life. It's the narrative of Jesus. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you'd like more information about us or find out ways to contact us, visit our website at www.beaverlodgealliancechurch.com. We pray today that you would experience the love, presence, and power of Jesus Christ and then make him known.